right. Good morning, Calvary Church. How's everybody doing this beautiful winter morning here in Connecticut? Uh, it's Anyway, we don't need to talk about the weather. I'm glad you guys are here. And uh, if you're regularly attend Calvary or if you're visiting us for the first time, something we talk about a lot here at Calvary is that we um, want to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. We want to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and, other pe- reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And so there's some opportunities in the coming days and weeks to kind of pl- press into those things, and we just want to make you aware of them. If you are newer to Calvary, and if you're just like, hey, I moved into town, or I'm trying to find a church, then we have a great opportunity for you. After Easter, on April 16th, At 10.30, we're going to have something called a Next Steps Brunch. Next Steps Brunch. It's not going to be an omelet bar or Eggs Benedict, but it'll be amazing. It'll be delicious. And this will just be an opportunity for you to come for uh, myself and some other staff members just to meet you, shake your hands. There'll be a few minutes just kind of telling you about what we do at Calvary, different ways for you to get involved. And we want to make a space where, again, if you're visiting our church or you've been visiting for a while and you want to know more, that you have somewhere to come. So if you're newish to Calvary or if you've been at Calvary for a while and not yet taken a step to more uh, deeply engage in our body and discipleship and impact, then we would love to invite you to this. There's some of these little cards. You can grab them on your way out. And then after this, the following week, we would invite some of the people who come to this, if they're interested, we're going to do a essentially an intro to Calvary class, which is going to be about five weeks long, where we cover our doctrine, the way we're uh, led, what our staff does, different opportunities, how we try to build out the vision, our local ministry partners. Um, and so it's just a great chance for you to kind of take a deeper dive. So a few different ways. If you're new-ish and you want to know more about our church, we'd love for you to come to the Newcomers Brunch on April 16th at 1030. And then... As a body and as a group of disciples, we have an amazing opportunity this coming week to think about and to be impacted by Jesus' death for us, and then also with immense joy to celebrate his resurrection next Sunday together. And so here's some ways throughout the week that we as a body of disciples who are following Jesus can celebrate and think about and remember what he's done uh, this, this week. On Thursday night for our kids at 7 o'clock, there's an event that we've done for several years now called Night in the Upper Room, Night in the Upper Room. And so if you have an elementary-aged kid, um, we would invite you to come to that. That's essentially kind of a, uh, a visual reenactment of the Last Supper that they engage with, and they kind of walk through that with, there is lamb, and it is good lamb. It's not like microwaved lamb patties somewhere, right? So uh, they kind of walk through what Jesus ate, what Jesus did, what happened that night, and it's been a meaningful time. And so if your child has not yet participated or participated in years past, we'd invite you to that for the kids, 7 o'clock. And then on Good Friday, what we did last year is what we're going to replicate again this year. Um, it's wonderful to celebrate that there are churches in Fairfield County who are gathering right now, who do things differently than we do, but yet who believe the same thing. And there are some churches this morning who are bigger than we are, smaller than we are. There's some churches this morning that are very liturgical, and the gentleman appears in robes, and there's some churches that the gentleman is in a suit and not in robes. Some people read creeds, some people do it the way we do it, and the beauty of that is that all of us who believe in Jesus and cling to the truth of the Bible, man, are united. And so Good Friday, for decades, has given us and local churches a chance to 
show that unity. And so we're going to uh, do that again this coming Good Friday. It's going to be a little bit different, but at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a service for about an hour, and there's going to be a group of about five to seven different churches who are all going to participate. Some of the different pastors or leaders in those churches, there's going to be scripture reading, there's going to be uh, singing through some songs, there's going to be a time of communion, and hopefully it'll be a meaningful and uh, beneficial time gathering together in a reflective way to celebrate within the larger body of Christ what Jesus did for us on Good Friday. So 5 o'clock on Good Friday, we've moved it to 5 so that folks who can work are able to come, and we're looking forward to that. And then on Easter Sunday at 9 and 10.30, we are going to be in this room on these blue chairs celebrating what Jesus did in, by putting death in the grave and what impact that has uh, for all of us, that moment that we changed everything. So a few ways for us as a body of disciples this coming week to celebrate what Jesus has done. But we want to do more Calvary than just build a body of disciples. We also want to personally and collectively reach and impact other people. And so, for the last time before Easter Sunday, you have another amazing chance to watch the hardest working uh, ministry leader in all of the world, Mr. Jim Taylor, tell us and invite us to participate in a way that collectively, as a body, we can try to reach and impact other people. So check out this video about an opportunity for you this week. Well, hey, everybody. Hey, spring is here and Easter is just a few weeks away. That means it is time for You've Been Egged. That's right. I'm ready. I have my plastic egg, even my Easter colored shirt on. If you're not sure what You've Been Egged is, basically it's our way of trying to help you impact someone that you're connected with this Easter season. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's someone you work with, a friend at school, somebody that's on a sports team. It doesn't matter how you know them. The key is that you know them and you want to impact them this Easter season. Here's how it works. As you come out of church over the next few Sundays, you're going to see our You've Been Egg display tables. And you're going to take a carton, one carton for each family that you're going to egg. I've decided to egg two families this year, so I'm taking two cartons. Now, if you take a closer look at the carton, you'll notice that the top has a sign on it, You've Been Egged by Calvary Church, and it says, Happy Easter from. That's where you fill your name in so that people know who egged them. If you look at the inside, there's a little information on Calvary Church, but very importantly, there's a spot where you have to put the number of eggs that you are scattering in their yard so they know how many eggs to find. All right, so you're sticking with me here, right? You're following me? Two families, two cartons. The math is not hard. You're going to work your way right down the line here, and you'll notice there's bags, and they have candy and empty eggs in it. These are the eggs that you're going to stuff and use to scatter in people's yards. Now, if I'm going too fast for you or you're not paying attention to what I'm talking about, don't worry because there's an instruction sheet in the bag and all you have to do is follow these step-by-step -step instructions to have this work out. Very important though, two cartons, two families. Well, one of my families has one ch child, the other has two. So I'm gonna take one bag per child. So first family gets one bag, second family, two children, they get two bags. That way there's plenty of eggs for all of the kids to find. On the Friday or Saturday before Easter, you're going to head out to the family. You're going to leave this carton near their front door. You're going to scatter the eggs in the yard. You can give them a call ahead of time if that's what works for you so they know you're coming or make it a surprise. You know them best so you do what works out. We're just hoping that You've Been Egg gives you the opportunity to make an impact on someone that you're connected to this Easter season. Happy Easter.
about it, and it is an easy way for you to try to impact somebody with God's love, right? And sometimes before people are ever willing to hear God's truth, they need to experience God's love. I love the verse in the Bible that we talk about a lot, being a sweet aroma of Jesus in the nostrils of other people. Sweet aroma. And this is a way for you and I, together as a church, to be the sweet aroma uh, for people in our community. So we'd encourage you to do that. And then last thing, maybe you don't, you know, as you do that, also here's some business cards we've got printed up for you on the way out. We'd invite you. We don't do this just because, like, you know, we won a $5,000 worth of free printing at our printing company. We do this because we want to give to you a way for you to grab four or five business cards, 10 business cards. If you have a neighbor or friend, you're like, hey, I would love for you, if you don't have a place on Easter, to come on Easter Sunday. Hand them the card, buy them a bagel on the way home, and who knows what God might do with this. But, but here's the deal, right? We talk about this a lot. The Christian life is more than you and I just every Sunday sitting on the blue chairs going home seven days, coming back again, and doing it again. Right? The Christian life is more than you and I just sitting on the blue chairs, receiving. The Christian life is about sitting on the blue chairs in community with other Christians, worshiping together, receiving God's word, but then about you and me doing things where we are to go into our sphere of influence to make disciples. So we have given you on a, on a t-ball softball a way for you to get involved, and so we'd invite you to do that. And it'll be exciting to see what God might do through your faithfulness. It is not hard to grab some candy and give it to your neighbors. And sometimes it's the smallest thing that God works through in amazing, amazing ways. So we're going to jump into our sermon today. I'm excited about it. Uh, last week, if you were here, man, we had like 10 feet of white foam core behind me that I got to mark up with all sorts of Sharpies. Well, that was fun for me. You couldn't read a word of it, but uh, no, that's all right. It, we needed the gift of interpretation in tongues for you to figure out what it said on there. Uh, but this week, we don't have a big dry erase board, but we have God's Word, and I'm excited about what He has for us as we move into continuing to think about Easter. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. So, uh, Father, thank you for these opportunities before us as a church to, um, to celebrate and to remember what Jesus has done for us this time of year. And I pray that you will, through the Holy Spirit, enable all of us to find some quiet moments to reflect upon the reality that Jesus was a substitute for us and for the incredible hope and peace um, that it gives to us. And I pray, Father, that as we have some different ways that we can serve our neighbors and love our neighbors and impact them, that you will prompt us and put on our hearts the people that you would have us reach out to and that we will be obedient and we will do that. And I pray, God, that you will work through some little plastic eggs in amazing ways that we can't even uh, think about and conceive of. And will you help us now as we move into your word and into the text? And uh, will this, as always, Father, help us learn more about the Bible, but also be people who better reflect Jesus? And so I pray this in his name, and thank you for this power of the Spirit in this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for a while, what you know is we have spent months and months and months together working through the book of Revelation. We ended a week or so ago in chapter 10 of Revelation after Easter, the Sunday after Easter Sunday. We are going to get back into Revelation in Revelation chapter 11, and then we will just be a few chapters away from, oh, uh, it's going to start clicking. It's going to be okay. I didn't spill honey on it this morning, cats. I promise. Uh, we're going to get back into Revelation, and it's going to be, man, Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, and that's where we're headed. But today, we're not in Revelation because we wanted to take a couple of weeks and 
just kind of think about Easter and start reflecting upon Easter. And today is Palm Sunday. And in churches all around the world, they're celebrating Palm Sunday as we are in all sorts of different ways. And it celebrates the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And there's all sorts of different thoughts about the size of the crowd that was there that day. But some size of some crowd on that day was celebrating him and anointing him and talking about him being king. And here's what happened on that Palm Sunday that is celebrated today in the religious calendar. I'm going to read it out of Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, Why are you doing this, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus rode into town on that day, and there were a crowd of people gathered around him celebrating, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But four or five days later after this, because there's different thoughts on when this Palm Sunday event actually happened, but four or five days after this event of Palm Sunday, there was another crowd of people gathered around Jesus in Jerusalem. And in that day, those crowd of people gathered around Jesus in Jerusalem weren't saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On that day, the crowd gathered around Jesus were saying, crucify him, crucify him. Four days prior, there was a crowd of people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And four days after that, there was a group of people, another crowd with Jesus saying, crucify him, crucify him. And at the center of that crowd on that second day was a guy named Pilate, a guy named Pilate. In 1831, there was a painter named Antonio Cicero, and you art scholars correct me if I'm wrong, but who painted an image of this scene. And here's the, the picture that they painted. This artist tried to capture that moment where five days after Palm Sunday, four days after Palm Sunday, Jesus was with another crowd in Jerusalem, and they were saying, crucify him. At the center of that crowd, at the center of that moment, was this man named Pilate. And in that moment, there was a question that Pilate had to answer. There was this issue that was hovering over that day and over that scene, and the one thing that Pilate needed to decide is kind of captured in Matthew 27, 22, and it is this. Here's the question that Pilate had to think about. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And that's a question that ultimately every single person is going to have to wrestle with. Every single person who's ever heard about Jesus is going to have to wrestle with the question of, okay, what do I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? Do I believe him? Do I ignore him? Do I follow him as a good teacher? 
Do I not even think that he even existed? Or do I believe everything about him and see him as my substitute? There's this initial question that everybody is going to have to answer about, what do I do with this person named Jesus? And then for those people who say, man, here's what I'm going to do with Jesus. I believe he's true. I believe he died for me. I believe I can have salvation and forgiveness. After and if you've made that choice, there are still days and moments and hours when you're going to be confronted with thinking about, what do I do with Jesus? What do I do with Jesus? Do I obey him? Do I listen to him? Do I do what he wants me to do, or do I ignore him even as a Christian? And as Pilate was answering this question, what do I have to do with Jesus, who was called Christ, there were kind of three issues that he was processing. As he was trying to work through this big, broader question, there were three smaller questions that he was confronted with and and working through, and that's what we're going to think about today. Um, Most of our text is going to be coming out of uh, Luke 23, but we're going to jump around and see how different biographers, different gospels kind of capture and share information about this event. But before we think about how Pilate answered this question and the things that were involved in answering that question, we need to think about how Pilate and Jesus even cross paths. How did Pilate and Jesus even get to that scene that was captured by that artist in the city of Jerusalem that day? What brought their stories and their realities together? Well, as you're probably so sick of hearing, but I'm not going to ever get sick of saying, because it makes me feel young, right? I used to be, when I wasn't so scrawny and pale looking, I I used to be a probation and parole officer in the amazing state of South Carolina, right? I worked with pride for about two and a half, three years for the, right, South Carolina Department of Probation, Pardon, and Parole Services. And as a bunch of you have heard, because uh, I've told you, one of the things I enjoyed doing that is we would go out and when our parolee or our probationer decided that they didn't like doing what they were supposed to be, man, we put on the vest, we put on the cool badge that hung over your thing, and we got, you know, to their house at about 4.30 in the morning. If you ever arrest anybody, the prime time to arrest them is between 3 to 4 or 5 in the morning, just so you know, okay? There's all this stuff with REM cycles and sleep and grogginess. It's a proven fact. So we would go, we would grab the bad guys, um, and we would lovingly share with them, since they had decided to do what they weren't supposed to do, it was time for them to come back with us and uh, go see the judge. For whatever reason, I think I mentioned this last time, every time we went out to arrest people, we'd always end the morning at Hardee's getting some amazing sausage biscuits and bad coffee. I don't know why. But somewhere before we would go to Hardee's, we would have the person who made bad choices in our car, and we would then take in South Carolina, whenever anybody's arrested, and in pretty much every state, you always have a hearing. Each state, even federal courts, have a series of hearings that are required after people are arrested. In South Carolina, for our probationers or parolees, the very first thing we would do is we would go to the Greenville County Sheriff's Law Enforcement Center. Oh, this beacon of cement standing in the middle of downtown Greenville. And we'd go in there, and we would go before a magistrate judge, and the judge would have an initial hearing to set this person's bond, right? To decide, hey, do we let this guy go? Or is this person, how are we going to set the bond? How are we going to give them money that if they post this bond, they can get free? When I arrested bad guys decades and decades ago, there was always a hearing that would have to come after that arrest. 
And the same thing is true in the story of Jesus. Jesus, on Thursday night, was arrested. And he was arrested because of religious charges that were brought against him. And so after that arrest, just like in South Carolina, in Jerusalem, they had to take Jesus and they had to bring him to some sort of hearings. And the first type of hearings that Jesus had were at least two religious hearings. Jesus had two religious hearings, and then he had one civil hearing before the Roman governor. Two religious hearings, one hearing before the Roman governor. And so in John chapter uh, 18, verses 12 and 13, we kind of hear what happened. So verse 12 starts picking up the action. So the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First... They led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So the first religious hearing that they had was they brought Jesus before the person who had been the former high priest. Nobody really knows who and why they did that. And interestingly, there's been a bunch of lawyers who have kind of studied these hearings. And man, if you were a defense attorney for Jesus, you would have had a good case because there were so many procedural flaws with what happened during these hearings. So first hearing was before this person named Annas. They went there, nobody knows why, but then after that, Jesus had a second religious hearing. So they take him to the former high priest, then Matthew 26, verses 57 through 65, tell us about this second religious hearing that Jesus had. And here's what we read in those verses. So then those who had, after they took him to Annas, those who had seized Jesus in verse 57, led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So there is now a religious group of people who are essentially going to have a little hearing, a little trial for Jesus after his arrest. It's the high priest, kind of the biggest person of the religious, and then there's some other group of religious leaders gathered for this hearing, kind of essentially in this courtroom-like place in the high priest's house. Caiaphas, the high priest, where this, and where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at his distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and was going inside. He sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Isn't that interesting? The biographer admits that at this hearing, man, they're just trying to like condemn Jesus based on lies. They're not seeking actual things that he did wrong. They were trying to find false testimony to put Jesus to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the, high, at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus is essentially doing is making this claim to divinity. Then, verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered, uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy, right? So there's blasphemy. The high priest is upset. The religious people are like, he can't claim to be God. And so then the question is, well, what should his punishment be? What should his punishment be? And that's in the very next verse. What is your judgment? And they answered, 
He deserves death. He deserves death. Jesus was arrested. After his arrest, the people who arrested him didn't go out to Hardee's. They carried him to two different religious hearings. They took him to religious hearings because the things of which he charged were not being charged with a violation of the Roman law. He was being charged with a violation of the religious law, right? It's like if we're trying you because if you're a member, you haven't fulfilled your membership covenant. It's a religious trial. And after that religious trial and religious charges, what these people say is, well, he deserves death. And so then after that, what this group of soldiers do is then take Jesus from the religious courthouse to the Roman courthouse. And Matthew 27, uh, chapter 1, the next thing says, when morning came, and other passages say it's now about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. So somewhere between 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, right? That's the sentence. And they bound him, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Why did they have to take Jesus to Pilate? Jesus has already had one trial. Jesus has already had one hearing. Jesus was already wrongly found guilty of that, and a punishment was issued. Why did they have to take him to Pilate? Well, here's the reason he, they had to take him to Pilate. Pilate was, worked for the Roman government, and the Roman government that was in charge of Israel at that time had this rule that the Jewish people couldn't execute anybody. They had this law, the Roman law, that Jewish leaders weren't able to execute anybody in their own power. There was one exception to that, maybe two, maybe three, but I know one. The one exception was that if somebody went charging into the temple, into like holy of holy place, trying to breach the deal, the, the Jewish people at that time could take the guy out. But apart from that, if there was any death sentence to be issued, the Jewish people could not enact that. That had to be a decision of the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities were the only body with the power in that jurisdiction to put people to death. And so the Jewish leaders needed the Roman authorities to rubber stamp this thing to validate it and then to take over the execution phase of this trial of Jesus. And so they brought Jesus to the courthouse that day, and the governor, the person who was there, was this man named Pilate. What do we know about Pilate? Well, he was the governor of Judea, and I think we might have a map coming up, I think, of Judea. So here's where he is. We're down here. Here's Jerusalem, and um, Israel at this time is kind of broken out into these different regions and these different counties, if you will. And so Pilate was the governor of this guy. Pilate was in charge of this jurisdiction. He'd held that position um, for about 10 years total over his career, about 10 years in that role. And when Jesus was in his late 20s, that's when Pilate was placed in this role. A Jewish philosopher described Pilate as inflexible, merciless, and obstinate. Man, he's the kind of guy I want to work for, right? Flexible, merciless, and obstinate. Others described him as cruel. Pilate was a guy who was proud. Pilate was a guy who was arrogant. But Pilate was also a guy who had sometimes difficulty making decisions. He, he sometimes got in this place where he just kind of got stuck and he would vacillate and flip-flop. 
And how does Pilate respond when the Jewish leaders knock on his door at 3 to 6 in the morning with Jesus after this religious thing? Well, John, in his biography of Jesus, tells us how Pilate responds. And John 18, uh, verse 29, says this. So Pilate went outside to them, and he said, What accusations do you bring against this man? And later, what he says in that passage is, hey, why don't you just take him yourself and judge him by your own law? Because their concerns were religious, Pilate didn't want to get involved, but then the Jews began listing their concerns, and they're starting to tweak it now from religious to problems against Rome. And here's what they say. They start giving Pilate this list of concerns, and they began to accuse him, being Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is Christ the King. And so Pilate then begins this conversation with Jesus that's recorded in John 18. And in John 18, Pilate hears these accusations. It's early in the morning and he starts to engage Jesus in this conversation. And in verse 33 of John 18, this is that conversation. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus. He's just heard what the Jews have said. And he said to them, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or do others say this about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, and that's kind of this affirmation, right? What Jesus is saying is, yeah, you say that I'm a king, and this affirmation of that truth statement. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In that statement, what Jesus is saying is, look, all this conversation about me being the king, that's true. And last week on that you know, big phone call, two or three times, we talked about how the king is coming, the king has come, and Revelation is all about the king is coming again. And Jesus is saying, yeah, Pilate, I'm the king. That is true. And within that statement, there is this implicit invitation for Pilate to respond to that truth. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm a king, and everything that's prophesied me and everybody they're saying is true, and I'm here before you, and Pilate, I'm putting that statement of truth before you to respond to. And how does Pilate respond to that? Well, even if you're not a church person, you may know what he says in verse 38. Pilate then said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus made this implicit and explicit affirmation of truth, saying, I'm true. And then Pilate responds to that with this, this question of, ah, pff, what's truth? What's truth? And the first thing that Pilate had to decide as he was deciding what to do with Jesus was this issue of, is what Jesus says true? Is what Jesus says, true. The big issue that day for Pilate is, what am I going to do with Jesus? 
And Pilate's decision about what to do with Jesus, one thing it hinged upon was the decision of, okay, well, is what Jesus says true? Is what Jesus says true? He was cynical of absolute truth. He questioned if they're truth. And I think probably every pastor in every generation has made the comment that, man, we live in a generation where the question of if there is any truth, man, is so deep in the water. And, and pastors have been saying that since, since people started attacking the inerrancy of Scripture. Every decade, every generation, people in churches and Christians have been talking about, man, there is this uh, uh, unwillingness to believe in truth. And in this generation, in this decade, man, we find that around ourselves everywhere everywhere. We talked uh, several years ago or so about, you know, this, this idea, this value in our culture of tolerance, right? And how the idea of tolerance, and I wish I had the slide, but I didn't really think about it till this moment, how the idea of tolerance, what we unpacked a few years ago, was, has shifted. Tolerance used to be that you are willing to have other people hold other ideas, Right? That's what it used to mean to be tolerant, that you were willing to have other people, that there could be the existence of other ideas. But over the years, tolerance has shifted to this. It, you can't just allow other people to have other ideas. You now have to move to say that every idea is equally true and valid. It used to be that you could allow the existence of every other ideas. But now we're in a moment where if you don't think that every idea is equally true or right, then what's said is, well, you're intolerant. It's not just that there can be other ideas, it's that other ideas we're being told we've got to hold is all equally true. And, and, and we're swimming in that water. We're swimming in that water. And, and the question is, right, for all of us, that there may be people today, some of you, some of us, people you know, who like, they would respond like Pilate did, like, what is truth? Because there's this idea, and what a lot of people believe, and you know it, is that there isn't one truth, but that all truths are equally valid, right? What's, what's in the DNA of this moment in culture is this idea that there's just not one truth, that there's lots of truths, and every truth is equal and is equally valid. And maybe you're sitting here today, and you're like, yeah, that's kind of where I am, right? Like, how can we say that one thing's true? Everything's true. Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's people you know, your kids know. But there's a problem with that, right? There's a, if, if, if one person thinks that every truth statement is equally true, right? If one person says, no, 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 there is no truth. Everything is all true. All truth is truth, right? Well, they believe that to be true. But the challenge is then if one person over here says, no, 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 there's one exclusive truth. If a person over here says there's only one truth, and a person over here says every truth is true, those two things can't both be true at the same time, <laughs> right? You cannot be true that everything is true and that only one thing is true. Those cannot both be true at the same time, okay? They can't be. It just doesn't make sense. Now, we could go deep into this. We could talk about logic and philosophy, and we're not going to do that today because that's not what our text is about today. Our text today is not an apologetic on whether the Bible is true. Um, 
It's simply acknowledging that what we have to decide as we think about what to do with Jesus is the exact thing that Pilate had to decide. And what has to be decided is this question of, is what Jesus says true? Is what Jesus says true? There may be some people in the room today who are like, no, I don't think it is. But there may be some people in the room today who say, you know what, I do think what Jesus says is true. I do. And for those of us this morning who think that what Jesus says is true, here's the question for us. The application of that, the question of that is this. If what Jesus says is true, does that impact any decision in front of you today? What's going on in your life today? What crossroads do you find yourself in? What new season of life? What change in school and neighborhood and job? What decision are you trying to make? What are you anxious about? And the question for you is if you find yourself in that place and you're trying to decide what to do, well, if what Jesus says is true, does that impact any decisions in front of you today? If you're at a place where you've got two or three big decisions to make that you're just struggling with, well, what I'd encourage you to do is sometime later today, go home, type them, write down the two or three things that you're trying to decide about. And then what I challenge you to do is just to take a few minutes and look at each of those decisions and say, man, what, what does the truth of God say about that? In terms of what you do with your money, how are you supposed to spend your money? And maybe you're in a space where you're trying to decide, man, I have resources, and how do I steward them? How do I use the gifts that have been given to me? And you have four or five different options about what you can do with those blessings that God's given to you. And the question is this, if what Jesus says is true, how does that impact the decisions that you make about stewarding your money? Maybe you are not looking forward to next Sunday, because next Sunday's Easter, And I mean, you'll come to church, and that part you're excited about, kind of. But then after church, man, you have to go to that person's house to have some ham. They eat ham in Connecticut, right? Okay, good. I'm just making sure. Um, You got to go to that person's house to have ham. And you don't want to go there. Because about two months ago, that person made you really, really, really angry. And you haven't talked to them. You just hang up on them. If they try to text you, you're just like one word answers, yup, nope, whatever, <laughs> right? But you get together with them next week and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to just say yup, nope, whatever, because we're going to be at a meal. And you don't want to go because you're bitter, you're angry. Well, if what Jesus says is true about relationships, how does that impact how you should act towards that person? How does that impact whether you should forgive them? Maybe you're dating. Maybe you're in some sort of physical relationship. Maybe you're deciding whether to get in some sort of physical relationship. Maybe there's questions about sexuality. And the questions for you and for me is this, if what Jesus says is true, how does that impact those decisions that are in front of you? Pilate, as he was thinking about Jesus on that day, had another issue that he was trying to decide. Over in Luke, we read about that. Luke 23, verse 4 through 5, says these words. Then, right, so Pilate just had this conversation with Jesus about truth. Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. 
But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. They were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, right? Pilate has now, if you read through the story in all the Gospels, numerous times what Pilate says is, This dude is innocent. This dude is innocent. Listen, guys, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. But Pilate's in a tough spot. And Pilate's in a tough spot because he doesn't think Jesus has done anything wrong. In fact, there's a spot where later in Matthew, I think it is, he's like, these guys are just making this up because they're jealous of him. They just want to get a political opponent out of the way, right? Pilate says that. He doesn't think Jesus is guilty, but he's in a tough spot because of this. They were urgent, The crowd on that day that was comprised largely of Jews who he was in charge of overseeing in Jerusalem were like, bro, you got to do something about this, Pilate. Come on, come on, come on. And Pilate was on, as we'll talk about later, he was on political thin ice. And, and, And he had been given a job by the emperor of Rome to make sure everything in Jerusalem went well. Pilate, we're going to put you in Judea, and Jerusalem's there, and bro, you just keep the peace. But Pilate had really made some missteps. That will hit in a little bit. And so his job was in jeopardy. He couldn't risk this crowd going sour on him. He was in this spot where he's like, I don't see any good option. I don't want to deal with this. I wish it would just go away, right? Have you ever had a moment like that in your life where there's something in front of you you're like, I do not want to deal with this, right? I... (laughs) I often joke with my family that when there's something I don't want to go to and I don't want to deal with, my, my approach is I just go down to ShopRite, I get some chicken, and I'm just going to eat some raw chicken and get food poisoning, right? <laughs> I haven't tried it yet, but I've been close, right? Because sometimes in life, we don't want to deal with things. And Pilate's in this moment thinking, why is this happening this morning, right? I just wanted to get up and do Wordle and have a really nice day, and now I'm stuck in this political quandary. He's not guilty, but they're urgent. I don't want to deal with this. And he's listening to this, and Pilate was where he was because old boy was a good politician, and he heard this. He heard Galilee. And then Pilate thought to himself, oh, wait, maybe this is my out, right? 23 verse 6, he says this, the next verse to the people. When Pilate heard this, he's like, I thought I heard you guys say that this guy's from Galilee. Is that right? He asked whether the man was a Galilean. And that's important because flip to the map one more time. I might be a little out of order, but here's what we saw. Pilate's in charge of this area, Judea. But there's another guy named Herod who is in charge of this political region, right? And so what Pilate's thinking is, well, hey, if old boy is from up here, then I don't need to worry about it because he's not in my jurisdiction, right? The first selectman of the town of Trumbull does not have to worry about what is happening in Monroe. They can punt it to the first selectman of Monroe. And what Pilate's thinking is, yes! This is my exit. This is my way out. He's from up here, so they have jurisdiction, so we're going to let this dude take care of it. And so the very next verse, what Luke tells us in verse 7 is this, when Pilate had heard and learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, who oversees Galilee, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Herod and Pilate are on the same org chart in the Roman government. Herod oversees Galilee. Jesus was doing stuff in Galilee, was from Galilee. Pilate's like, yes, I've gotten out of this. This is my moment to eat the raw chicken so I don't have to deal with that, so I don't have to address it, so I don't have to go with it. Pilate found a way to avoid making decision. Pilate wanted to punt. Pilate wanted to punt. 
the decision about what do I do with this guy named Jesus. And the second thing Pilate had to decide with this looming question of what do I do with this man Jesus, the question he had to think is like, can I avoid or delay making this decision? Can I avoid or delay making this decision? And the application for us this morning, for those of us in the room who are trying to decide what do we do, is this. Are you trying to avoid dealing with something that Jesus has put in front of you? Are you, am I, trying to avoid dealing with something that Jesus has put in front of us? Jesus was put in front of Pilate. Pilate had to decide with whether what Jesus said was true and had to decide, what do I do with this person who's put this thing right in front of me? And Pilate wanted to punt and avoid and delay and not deal with that decision. And are you trying to avoid dealing with something that Jesus has put in front of you? Are you maybe... You know what Jesus wants you to do. You do. You don't need anybody in your community group to pray about it. You don't need to come see me to talk to me about it. I love when people, Peter, I've really been reading the Bible a lot, and, you know, I have this decision at work about whether I should tell the truth or not. And there's this verse in the Bible that says, God doesn't want me to lie, but can you just pray for me about what to do? No! Pray that you stop being such a knucklehead, okay? Man, right? Some of you, um, so many times in life, we we cross over from what does God want me to do to I know what it is God wants me to do. But then you know what you and I sometimes do with that decision? We want to avoid it. It is sometimes hard. It is hard. It is confusing to discern the will of God. It is hard to know the will of God in specific moments, in specific situations. Man, lots of sermons and books that help with that. But it seems that many of us do reach a moment when we do know what he wants us to do. And then sometimes in our lives, it becomes even harder. Because we know what it is he wants us to do. We just don't want to do it. And so we get stuck in this place of perpetual trying not to do anything, trying to avoid it, trying to delay it, trying to not deal with it, trying to kick it down the court so somebody else who's not us has to deal with it or do what God wants us to do. Maybe some of you know exactly what it is God wants you to do, but you haven't taken a step to do it because you don't know if you can trust him. You don't know if you can trust him. You think I think, right, sometimes what we do in those moments is we wrongly think that we can trust ourselves, that, that we, it's better to trust ourselves. Have you ever been there? God's asked you to do something, God's asked you to steward something, God's asked you to start, God's asked you to stop, and you're like, well, okay, I, you know, I don't know if I can really trust Jesus, but I think I can trust me a whole lot better to figure this out. Maybe some of us know exactly what it is that God wants us to do. But the reason we're trying to punt doing it is because we're like, I just, I don't know if he's going to come through for me. And it's a risk. And it's scary. Because I know this. 
but I don't know this. And he's come through for me in this. But what if he doesn't come through for me in that? Or maybe you just don't want to do it. You're just like, nope. Right? Don't want to do it. And so then what you and I sometimes do is we, we, we've come out, we, we spend some time thinking about what does God want me to do? What is his will? How does he want me to obey? What is he leading me to start, leading me to stop? Where do I break up? Who do I go? What do I do? And, and we know that. So then we get over here and we kind of now know what it is, but we're like, no, I don't want to do it. And so then what we do when we're talking to other people is we go back and pretend like we're over here. Well, I'm still trying to pray through what I'm supposed to do. No, you're not. You're trying to punt the very thing you know Jesus wants you to do by spiritualizing it, talking about, I need to just pray more about it. Well, we sometimes all do that. And in your moment in your story, God is rarely a God of the status quo. We live in a culture, especially in Fairfield County, especially in the United States, right? You take Fairfield County, you take the United States, it is all about get as much comfort as you can, and then you grab onto the status quo and don't try to rock anything. But Jesus is really about the status quo and nothing being rocked. I appreciate that I was meeting with somebody this week who kind of shared a little bit of their story about, hey, we follow the good shepherd. And where the good shepherd leads, we go. And man, God is a God who leads and who guides. And maybe for some of you, he's leading and guiding you somehow today. And you're kind of thinking, I wish I didn't come to church. Or I wish I hadn't clicked on online today because, yeah, sorry. Question is this for you and me. Are you trying to avoid dealing with something? So he sends him to Pilate because Pilate doesn't want to deal with this. Jesus is right in front of him. Pilate's like, no, I don't want to deal with it. And so Pilate punted it and sent him up to Herod. But what happened is in Luke again, 23, 9, 11, we see this. He questioned him, Herod, at some length. Interestingly, you guys really should read these stories. I think every gospel has different insights. Herod was so excited to have Jesus come to him because Herod had wanted to know who Jesus was. Jesus comes and doesn't really say anything. Herod's disappointed, Herod's angry. He questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. He sent him back to Pilate, we know from Roman procedural law and also from the Gospels, because Herod's like, dude's not guilty. Pilate, why'd you send this boy to me? right? I'm over here on Monroe trying to deal with Monroe problems, and you sent this guy to me. That's a Trumbull problem. Plus, this guy doesn't have anything to do with me. So, Pilate, back to you. And Pilate's like, oh. Pilate's like, what am I supposed to do with this man, Jesus, who is called the Christ? Two times now, Roman leaders have found Jesus not guilty. Not guilty. There's no charges. Procedurally, Pilate should have just cut him loose. Pilate should have been like, "You're man, go on your way. Release the handcuffs. Get out of here. But Pilate knew that that would anger the constituents in Jerusalem. Pilate had done two really stupid things with uh, images of Caesar and himself in sacred places of the Jews. And the Jews 
prior to this incident had gotten so mad at him because he like offended them in their holy worship. And he'd really been a knucklehead who'd bumbled his whole rule over them. And they gotten really, really upset. And so after one of these, when he brought in these images to put in their place of worship, which was against the Jewish law, to a bunch of Jewish people who started to pick it. They started to protest. And then Pilate, this was not politically savvy, he killed a bunch of them, right? If you're a political leader, killing your protesters either works really, really well or not really well at all, right? Pilate was like, okay, I've done these things. It's angered the Jewish people. They're not protesting, so I'll just kill them. When he wiped out a few of the protesters, then a whole bunch of people went way over Pilate's head to Caesar. And they're like, Caesar, this guy that you put over us is bad news. And Caesar's watching Pilate. Pilate is on a performance improvement plan, okay? A pip. Pilate's like... Pilate's like, if I have one more misstep, then I'm not going to have this fancy house and this swag and all these robes and all these grapes and all these clothes. I'm going to be like in the middle of the desert somewhere. And so Pilate is trying all that he can and a few more stripes. And so we see this in Matthew 27, right? He's now, Jesus is now back before Pilate. And it says this in verse 16. It's been a long day. This is all Friday. Okay, Friday morning, probably started three or four in the morning, and now it's been going on seven or eight hours. And here's what Pilate does. It's the feast, right? We're moving into this feast, and Jesus is back again on that day. And Matthew tells us in verse 16, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus? This is a last-ditch effort by Pilate to try to make them happy and not have to murder an innocent man. Pilate's like, okay, i got to work out this compromise. Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him. Besides, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Men, listen to your wives, okay? When I, like, have this great idea, oh, babe, I'm going to do this, in case you're just like, mm, you should listen to your wives. That's a footnote for free, okay? His wife's like, dude, don't do anything bad against this guy. Now, the chief priests, verse 20, and the elders persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Again, Pilate said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what do I do with Jesus? Pilate's like, guys, I'm trying to get this compromise. I don't want to deal with it. I don't know if what he's saying is true. I don't want to lose my job. I'm in this pickle I don't want to do in. He is innocent, right? This is what Pilate's thinking. Y'all are jealous of him. He is a political rival that you're trying to kill, and he's threatened you. And I don't want any part of that, but I don't want to make you mad. The right thing is to let him go, but the right thing is going to cost me. And so Pilate is like, so what do I do with this guy? And then they all said, let him be crucified. Now, Pilate's on his fourth or fifth pushback against them. And he gives this last one, why? They're crucified, why? Pilate's like, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. 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 Pilate has lost control of the room. Pilate has lost control of the moment. And Pilate has a choice. Do I do the right thing that's going to cost me? 
or do I do the thing that's not going to have a cost to me and allow me to keep ruling this empire? So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it to yourselves. Interesting, in Luke 23, 13 through 14, he says these words as well in that conversation. He says, so when Pilate then called together the rulers and said to them, you brought me this man who once misled the people, and after examining him, behold, I don't find him guilty of any of the charges that are against him. But then Pilate says, but hey, there's about to be a riot. I wash my hands of this. I'm not going to act according to that. Because that, if I make a decision based on that, that's going to cost me something. Here's the third thing that Pilate had to decide. Am I rightly willing to stand for Jesus no matter the cost? Am I rightly willing to stand for Jesus no matter the cost? And here's the application question for you and me this morning. Is there an area in which Jesus wants you to stand for him, but you're afraid of what it's going to cost? Is there an area in which Jesus wants you to rightly stand for him, but you're afraid of what it's going to cost? Cost in terms of your reputation, cost in terms of your potential income, cost in terms of what people think about you, cost in terms of financially what it might cost you, cost in terms of people like you and they think you're cool to be with and yeah, but then if you stand for that, they're going to like be like, you're a freak. And you don't want the people around you to think you're a freak. You want them to think you're cool and you're good and ah. Maybe today there's been something that Jesus has been saying, like, hey, I've got you in this moment. I've placed you in that sphere of influence, and in that place, I'm asking you to take a stand for me in some way. But there might be a cost to doing the right thing. And so you're afraid of what it might cost. Is there that situation? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here, and as they do, just two thoughts. If you're wrestling with this this morning, or we're all going to have to wrestle with that one day, and on the day when you do have to wrestle with this, I I would just leave you with two things. And listen, I know when they come up here, we want to watch them get ready, but look, listen. If you're trying to figure out, is there an area in which Jesus wants to take a stand, but you're afraid of what it might cost, or if you're kind of back to the second one where you know what Jesus wants you to do, you know the path he wants you to take, but you're afraid and you want to punt it, here's just two things I'd leave with you. In those moments, what you and I focus on is what it will cost us right? If I obey Jesus, it's going to cost me something, right? Security, comfort, known, right? Wherever I'm situated, reputation, but listen, listen. And we just get focused on what it's going to cost, what it's going to cost, what it's going to cost, but listen, don't focus so much on what it might cost you that you overlook what you might gain. Don't focus so much on what that choice that obedience to Jesus might cost you, that you overlook what you might gain. Look, 
Um, I told you about my beautiful office overlooking the St. John's River with my telescope at a law firm that was one of the most prestigious law firms in Florida, right? River, country club, boat. I was lawyer boy doing great, and God called me to go to seminary. And I had some kids, and we had bills, and we had a house. Did I mention I had a boat? And were there moments where I'm like, man, this is going to cost something to give all this up and go back to school to be a pastor? Yeah. I mean, I can literally remember uh, I was putting my boat up for sale, and I was cleaning it. I was waxing it. And I'm like, I don't want to give this up. Was there a cost in my life and Casey's life, um, potential cost? to walking away from that, to going to seminary, to going to ministry. Yeah, there was. But you know what? We have gained so much. We have gained so much. And we would have missed out on decades of gain and meaning and God working if we'd said, nope, I'd rather just keep my stupid 20-foot boat. And I think what we do in decisions is all we worry about what it's going to cost, what it's going to cost. What, and for some of you, you aren't going to gain anything. But you will one day because the king is coming again. Right? But for some of you, we focus so much on what it costs that we overnore what it's going to gain. And look, if you're worried about what it might cost you to obey Jesus, what might it cost you if you don't obey Jesus? If you're worried about what it might cost you to obey Jesus, what might it cost you not to obey Jesus? You and I have no idea what hangs in the balance of the things that God asks us to do. We have no idea what hangs in the balance of the things that God asks us to do. And don't become so concerned about what it might cost you that you overlook what it might gain. And don't be concerned what it might cost you to obey that you forget to think about what might it cost you not to obey. And one day, someday, there's going to be something in front of you and you're going to have to think about what do I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? Let me pray. Father, you are sovereign and your ways are not our ways, and you know the whole story, and you author our story, and God, you use us in amazing ways to spread your kingdom, and to serve in your kingdom, and to impact your kingdom, and at different moments, we have to decide what we're going to do with you, Jesus, and I pray that as a body, Father, the Spirit will deepen our love for you, and deepen our understanding of you, and deepen our satisfaction in you, Jesus. I pray that as a body, we might be willing to obey you and we might encourage one another in obedience. And I pray for those people this morning who are in this room who are facing a decision or crossroads that your peace and your clarity, we know you're not a God of confusion. And so may you guide them and direct them and support them and encourage them and give them peace that passes understanding. And thank you, Jesus, that no matter what happens in this world, for many of us who believe in you, we have hope of another world that is so much better than this. We hope, have hope of eternity with you, Jesus. So may we cling to that. Amen.
I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to sing one more song about the hope that we have, right? That this is not the end of the story, that Jesus is a God who gives hope, Jesus is a God who redeems, Jesus is a God who turns graves into gardens. And so let's sing this song together as worship.